This episode is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash bookstacked. That's audibletrial.com slash bookstacked. I went to a conference uh, called the World Fantasy Conference in Phoenix, Arizona. But I met this one weird little dude with a card table in the back in sort of like, you know, the merch room. And, uh, and he was like, it, you know, I've been trying to get authors to podcast their novels for free, but I haven't found one yet. And I was like, well, do I get paid? And he's like, no. <laughs> and uh, I was like, all right. So I, I basically agreed to do it. So I went home and when I left that conference, I drove home like the eight hour trip, just thinking I wasted my time and I'd completely failed. Uh, and now I had more work to do for something that probably wasn't gonna work. That was my mindset. In truth, I had met Yoda, right? You, su- you succeed uh, without realizing it at first. And it's super important to realize that when you think you're failing, sometimes you actually are succeeding and it just, it just doesn't feel like it yet. From bookstack.com, you're listening to About the Author. I'm your host, Saul Marquez. Today we're sitting down with author Mark Jeffrey who wrote and self-published the Max Quick series and then gave his book away for free as a podcast, which in turn gave him millions of listeners. We've got his story coming up in just a few moments, so stay with us. So when Mark Jeffrey was young, he was pretty sure he was going to be a writer. He loved reading books, especially the Chronicles of Thomas Covenant by Stephen R. Donaldson. <laughs> Nobody's heard of it now, but in the 70s, uh, this, these books were like the bomb. And so with that idea of becoming a writer, Mark started off college as an English major. But after a while, he dropped the English major and went into computer science. Uh, and about, you know, maybe midway through sophomore year, I kind of went, you know what, I'm sort of I'm getting older and I'm growing up. Better do something real or I'm not gonna be able to make any money. <laughs> and that, that actually turned out to be the correct answer. Um, so I ditched the, the English major and dove into computer science and got a, graduated with a computer science degree from the University of New Hampshire. So, you know, I, 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 so I had a life skill that was like sellable right away. And from that point, Mark became very involved in business. In fact, if you Google Mark Jeffrey, you'll see that he might be best known for being a serial entrepreneur. Even after having written and published several books, Mark is still actively involved in starting companies. Like right now, for example, he's one of the founders and CEOs of a company called Guardian Circle. He even made an appearance on Apple's reality TV show, Planet of the Apps, where he pitched his app to Jessica Alba, Gwyneth Paltrow, Will I Am, and Gary Vaynerchuk. And so it took several years for Mark to shift his focus from entrepreneurship to writing when he finally tackled his first book, The Pocket and the Pendant. It wasn't, and basically it wasn't until later in life. Um, I had one really big success and one really horrific failure in business. And it was after the horrific failure in business Uh, that I wrote Max Quick. (laughs) Something about that experience like snapped my mind in half and and opened it in a a new way. I I was just able to write a lot better. I I can't really explain it other than, you know, it seems to be a common theme that, you know, when when you uh, get the crap kicked out of you, all of a sudden you become artistic for some reason, right? So you said it was a pretty, it was a business failure, I guess, that kind of opened that door for you? Yeah, I mean, it was- Can you go into that and what that was or is that- Let's dig into it. (laughs) So, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to. I'm happy to now because I'm far removed from it. So it's like, you know, a scary story that happened to somebody else. 
Um, so I'll, I'll very quickly, I did a company called The Palace, and that was a, an avatar chat thing on the internet. It was backed by Time Warner, Intel, and SoftBank. I raised $12 million in five minutes at the top of the Rockefeller Plaza building. That's crazy. Okay, how do you do that? I have to ask. Time Warner was merging with Turner at the time. And so people's jobs were on the line. And I said, well, that guy probably wants this and this guy probably wants that. And I just basically mapped it all out. And I, and I figured out a way to offer everybody what they wanted and raise money with that at the same time. That's basically how it happened. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and that was the first time I was like maybe 27 when this happened. Uh, we sold that company, big success. I got sort of, I was like internet famous for a while. And we had 10 million users at its peak, which for like, you know, 1998, that was that was huge. That was like half the internet in 1998. Then I do my second company called SuperSig, uh, where I raised like $2 million, which was about right for sort of a seed fund. Uh, and the, the big crash of the market came in 2000. And, uh, and, I, and I basically, you know, my partner and I started paying people salaries out of our pockets. Uh, you know, I had some money from the palace. So like, you know, I was good for a while. And, uh, and bottom line is after that, we, we kept the, the company going for a while. And, um, at the end of 2001, we ran out of money. And of course, 9-11 happened. So like all, everything got blown to hell in terms of the market. Uh, and I, I lost all my money. So I, uh, I had to go live on my friend's boat. I was basically homeless. Uh, and I just sort of hid from the world. And so basically when I was destroyed, effectively, started work, I had a lot of time, as I said, so I, uh, I started the first Max Quick Book. I'd always wanted to write, and I'm like, well, I'm screwed. I was always afraid of writing because I would be screwed, maybe, right? Uh, that's why I got the computer science degree. So I'm like, well, it's happened. So now I can, so might as well go do the thing I wanted to do in the first place. So I went and did it. Can you briefly describe the plot of The Pog Independent for those who haven't heard yeah. about it? So um, so basically, uh, time stops suddenly all over the world, except for one character named Max Quick, who is a boy uh, who is 12 and uh, you know has issues with his memory, shall we say. And uh, at first he thinks he's all alone. Um, and, and of course he's not alone because that would be a really super boring book. So he runs into a couple other kids who like him uh, are, are free to move around and stop time. So, so the, the basic plot is uh, all this stuff happens and the character, there is something special about all these kids um, and why they're immune to the, the, the stoppage of time. And they basically have to unravel the mystery as to you know what's going on, why is time stopped, figure it out. And then once they realize what's going on, uh, go on the offensive and fix it. And so that's, that's pretty much the plot. So did you find writing the book easy or was the process difficult in any way? I I did because it was sort of um, it was the first thing I attempted, and uh, the, you know the characters really grew on me. They say like the characters start speaking for themselves, which you know sounds like sounds like BS, right? Until until you actually start doing it, and then you're like, oh oh, that's weird. It does happen, right? And you know, and 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 they just sort of do things that you didn't expect them to do as you're writing. When you sort of get in the zone and you just go, and you just kind of go with it. So I, you know, I for me, Max Quick was definitely special and first. Um, that said, you know, I, I painted myself into many many corners because I was inexperienced as an author and uh, had not yet learned the art of outlining before writing. Um, I, at Pocket Independent, and, and basically the Pocket Independent is is a very short book. It's only like uh, the Harper Collins version is about sixty five thousand words. The original self-published version is like 95,000. 
um, which is about the same size as the first Harry Potter book. So it's, it's not very large. Uh, the, the second book, uh, Max Quick, The Two Travelers, uh, is 180,000 words, and I wrote that in six months. And the reason why, is, and I didn't re really rewrite it more than like twice. And the reason why is because uh, I outlined that one beforehand. Because I, I made such a mess of things in the, the, in the pocket of the pendant because I didn't know where I was going from the beginning. So you finished the pocket and the pendant. It's, you've completed the book. What was your plan then? I mean, were you going to immediately go to self-publishing or were you looking for agents or what were you doing? Yeah, so um, I, I didn't know. I first, I, I, you know, so I wrote it without really knowing, really having a plan. After I was done, um, I was friends with a guy named Michael Backus, uh, who had uh, been Michael Crichton's editor. And so I went to him and I said, hey, so I got something I think is pretty cool. How do I get it published? And he said, well, you have to get an agent and a literary agent. And that takes at least a year in the best case. And, you know, because it just things take forever in, in this world. Once you get an agent, the agent has to shop it around and you know, to the publishers. And that takes another year. And then once somebody says yes, it's about a year before it hits the shelves. So that was three years. I'm like, three years? Are you insane? I'm from the internet. Like, that's a that's like a century in my world. So I just basically was like, that is just fully unacceptable, no. And so I decided, so I went looking around and I found Lulu.com did self-publishing. And this was like in 2004. So I just self-published it. And uh, that was super cool. It was up on Amazon. And nobody cared. Nobody bought it. So yeah, I was going to ask, like, no, nope. what was it like? Just nothing. So, right. Because I was like one of millions of self-published books. I was just another one. And, and I, I, I suddenly realized they had a marketing, a severe marketing problem. And, uh, and I sort of scratched my head about how to solve it. I tried lots of things that didn't work. And I just started doing what I, I you know, do in business, which is uh, basically I start pushing buttons. <laughs> See what happens. Try things. Uh, and 90% and and of it doesn't do anything at all. And, um, and so I went to a, the thing that did work was I went to a conference uh, called the World Fantasy Conference in Phoenix, Arizona, and um, talked to a whole bunch of agents, talked to a whole bunch of authors and a whole bunch of publishers. They all said, go away, boy, go away. But I met this one weird little dude with a card table in the back in sort of like, you know, the merch room. And, uh, and he was like, yeah, I got this, uh, I got this podcast called The Dragon Page. And, uh, it, you know, I've been trying to get authors to podcast their novels for free, but I haven't found one yet. If you decide you'll do it, I'll promote it on the Dragon page. And he already had like a listener base. So he kind of described what a podcast was. I hadn't heard of that before. Right. That was one thing I wanted to stress is the fact that so this is like 2004, 2005. 2004. This is the end of 2004. Podcasting isn't really a thing yet. It's no. not at all what it is today. No, not even close. So like they, you know, most people had not heard about it. And so he told me what it was and I was like, well, do I get paid? And he's like, no. <laughs> and uh, I was like, all right. And so I started, I thought about it for, to my credit, I thought about it for a total of about half a minute where I was like, wait, my problem is not that I'm not getting getting paid. My problem is nobody, is, nobody cares. Nobody's heard of me. Nobody even wants to read my stuff for free. That's my problem. So I, I basically agreed to do it. So I went home and figured out how to use GarageBand and you know, all that stuff and created the podcast of the Pocket Independent. And, and true to his word, Evo Terra, which was the guy that I met, uh, started uh, promoting it. So I, got, I had listeners right away, which is great. And I had like maybe 20,000 listeners, something like that, right out of the gate, which that's cool. That was like instant, like within a day or, or what? Uh, it took a couple of weeks, but yeah, it was pre I mean, pretty much, it was instant. And that was all thanks to Evo. 
And, um, and, and the, here's the key point. When I left that conference, I drove home like the eight hour trip just thinking I wasted my time and I'd completely failed. Uh, and now I had more work to do for something that probably wasn't going to work. That was my mindset. In truth, I had met Yoda. When you meet Yoda, otherwise known as Evo Terra in this case, you don't necessarily know that that's Yoda, right? You, su you succeed uh, without realizing it at first. And it's super important to realize that when you think you're failing, sometimes you actually are succeeding and it just, it just doesn't feel like it yet. And so, you know, when Luke met Yoda, he didn't know it was Yoda. Yoda's like, no keep for seven, five, seven, right? Starts going through his junk and Luke's like, dude, get out of my stuff, man. And, uh, you know, but little does he know he's met the Jedi Master he's looking for. So that was kind of what happened to me. You're listening to The Pocket and the Pendant by Mark Jeffrey. Read by the author. Produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Michael. And I do want to ask, too, like, about the process of recording that audiobook. Has you recorded anything before? Like, did you have to go buy equipment for this? Like, what was that like, putting that together? Because you, for those who obviously haven't heard, you're the one who's narrating them and everything. And then you even have music in the background and, and all of that. So what was that like? Yeah, I hadn't, uh, no, I hadn't really recorded anything seriously. I mean, I goofed around with GarageBand, but nothing, you know, I wasn't really serious about it. I didn't know much about sound. Um, so, yeah, I had to buy some equipment and kind of figure it out. And, you know, if you go back and listen to what I recorded in 2004, it's certainly not up to snuff to today's standards. Uh, but for back then, it was passable. And, and, I, and I felt that – and no one had yet done a podcast, a serialized podcast of audiobooks. One, a very strange little boy. On April 8th at exactly 3.38 in the afternoon, the world stopped. It was as And in the same week, by the way, so I have to give Scott Sigler and T. Morris credit. They did their books uh, the same week that I did. They came out with their, their first uh, episodes. I don't know technically who was first. I don't know. Uh, different people say different things. So I just like to say all three of us did it at the same time, and it was a tie. So there it is. But yeah, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and and all, all three of us had very different takes on what a podcast audiobook was. Uh, I decided that it was a straight reading, uh, dramatic. So, you know, if people have accents and dual voices, I do the voices. And, and there was bed music underneath because I wanted it to feel like a television show. So I got some soundtrack music and, you know, did my best to sort of cut that together to score it, if you will. Um, and that was my interpretation. Uh, Scott Sigler was very much like, you know, shock jock kind of, you know, he had a little intro in the beginning and he talked to you about, you know, what happened last week and what's going on this week. And all right, now it's time for the episode. And off with the episode, you go and it was just a straight read. Uh, T. Morris, his interpretation was uh, it was a it was a voice play. So he actually had actors. <laughs> yeah, he went insane. He, he was like a BBC production with all kinds of different act, you know, voice actors. And you know, he really got into it. And he's an actor himself. So, I mean, it, it sounded really good. So the three different takes on it, I'd say probably Sigler's take uh, was the most correct out of all three of us. Um, so he, I think he got it mo the most right out of all three of us. But, you know, it was an experimental time. Nobody knew it was going to work yet. So in about a couple of weeks, you had 20,000 listeners or downloads. How did that grow? Like, was did you notice an immediate effect on your book sales? Or what was that like? Oh, no, it didn't help me sell any books at all. No, <laughs> but but. I had people emailing me for the first time saying, wow, this is awesome. You know, and just, you know, basically people saying really nice things about the books. I had fans like that had never happened before. So, um, 
that was new. And, uh, and I'm like, okay. And I felt really encouraged by that, obviously. And, uh, you know, I was no longer speaking into a microphone, you know, thinking in my, the back of my brain, I'm wasting my time. Uh, I was now thinking, oh yeah, there's people now waiting for the next episode. And in fact, people got really mad when it didn't show up like, you know, exactly on the hour, uh, every week. So, you know, you had to sort of do that. And so, but that was great because now I knew I was doing it for a purpose. Um, but I would say the biggest thing that kicked it into millions of users was, uh, we started this all in like February and in June, it was either June or July, I don't remember which, but definitely the summer, uh, Apple released podcast support directly in iTunes. So you didn't have to, before that you had to sort of download a podcatcher and, you know, kind of figure a bunch of stuff out that was kind of hard. And all of a sudden, you know, now just it's in iTunes and you click on it and boom, you got it. So uh, we, and at the time, me, Scott, and T had the only three free audiobooks in existence on iTunes. So people found their way to that one. Oh my God, and downloaded like crazy. And all of a sudden, all three of us had millions of listeners. So that was how we sort of blew up overnight. That was really the big thing. Do you know what the peak was? Like, how many listeners did you have? Uh, I know that I, my count was around two and a half million. So total. That's insane. Yeah, from when I started to like maybe two years into it. So, you know, it took a while for it to build and everything. But, but yeah, it was literally millions of people have consumed the book. So uh, in that format. So that's which is amazing. Yeah, I had this microphone to the to the to the uh, to the planet that, you know, and I was worried about like charging people a quarter. <laughs> you know, no, no. I, it was really, a, I should have been paying for the privilege to get a microphone to the planet, right? So that's another way to think of it. I think, I mean, at that point, over, I mean, over 2 million listeners, did you start seeing book sales then or was it? No, because I mean, people, these were people who listened to books, so they weren't really interested in buying the paper version. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of them did. There were some people who bought it because they just wanted it on their shelves. Um, but you know, that was a small percentage. That was not really a big, big percentage of them. Um, but what it did do, uh, but I'll tell you that the thing that it did do was it got me a few famous listeners. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. So <laughs> Abigail Breslin, uh, who is, um, I guess most famous for little, little Miss Sunshine is a movie, movie she started and she started a bunch of other stuff since then. Um, but she was listening to it on set and for all I know during the filming of Little Miss Sunshine. Um, and she, uh, she basically said in a national interview, they asked her what her favorite books were, and she said, the Max Quick series uh, and Anne of Green Gables. And she said, I'm almost finished with the Max Six Quick series, and I'm kind of sad about that. <laughs> so so not, she, she consumed not only Max Quick, not only The Pocket of Defendant, but Two Travelers as well. I don't know if she ever read Bane of the Bondsman, that never, which is the third Max Quick book, uh, because that was never a patio book. There was never an audio, a podcast. Um, and I know she listened, so I think she probably stopped at the end of the second book. So that was kind of, that was really nice. And then later on, so that, that's really what led to the deal with HarperCollins. When we come back, we'll learn how the Pocket Independent went from being self-published to traditionally published, and how republishing the book differed from Mark's original experience. We'll have all that right after this break. Looking to stay inspired after this podcast is over? You don't need us to remind you that some of the best inspiration comes from reading books. And what better way to consume books than with Audible? In the subway or in the car, when you're mowing the lawn or doing dishes, it doesn't matter where you are or what you're doing. You can always catch up on your TBR list with an audiobook. 
And for listeners of this podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download when you sign up for a 30-day trial at audibletrial.com slash bookstacked. Audible's selection of over 1,800 titles includes books like Victoria Aveyard's Red Queen series and Tomi Ediemi's Children of Blood and Bone. Again, go to audibletrial.com slash bookstacked for your free audiobook. And don't forget that even if you quit the trial, you get to keep the book. So Mark turned his self-published book into a free audiobook podcast, which gained him an audience of over 2 million. And this included actress Abigail Breslin. What Mark didn't realize at the time was that all of this was leading to a book deal with a major publishing house, HarperCollins. And of course, that experience really highlights the differences between the self-publishing world and the traditional publishing world. I had posted on Facebook that uh, Abigail Breslin, you know, I posted the articles and, and one of my friends comes back and says, hey, you know, I know some literary agents. And I was like, uh, introduce me. And so he did. And I introduced me to, uh, to the person who's my literary agent to this day. And she and basically this woman named Margaret uh, from Ennis Free Literary Agency. And so she basically uh, uh, became my agent and she shopped it around. And that's how we got the HarperCollins deal. I mean, so HarperCollins, that's a pretty big deal. Um, and transitioning from self-publishing to traditional publishing, what was it like to, to enter that world? What were your first impressions? It, that world is very antique, and it, it still is. Um, you know, just as another, you know, when I got my, I sent them a Word document with my completed manuscripts, and they sent it to a editor, and the editor wrote me back saying, okay, we've done edited, editing it, uh, it's on its way to you. And I said, oh, yeah, you forgot to attach it because I figured they sent, you know, it, it would be like, you know, track changes in Word or something. Right. And they went, oh, no, we FedExed it to you. I was like, FedExed it. I'm thinking and I'm still thinking like a zip drive, you know, or like a flash drive. And, I'm, and, and basically I figure out, no, they actually mean a paper copy with handwritten corrections on it. And I'm wow. Just, oh, oh, God, that's so painful. Like even lawyers who are resistant to technology use Microsoft Word with track changes, like, to, you know, nowadays. But the book published, the publishing industry is still ink, paper, and pens. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. So how does that process differ? I mean, in self-publishing, you have complete control of the final product. And now you're at a publishing house where you're working with a team of people. I mean, what, uh, what were there any unique challenges that came with that? The, the, the biggest thing is the amount of agonizing work that goes into editing and there are several you know versions of editing there's the story editing um and, and then they then they go into like editing the language the english they have somebody who's like an expert in the english english language uh who goes through and corrects your grammar uh and spelling and all that stuff that is one excruciating process so there's like two or three other passes which i actually forget now but i was just like oh my god are we done yet are you kidding me and you know it just it just seems to go on forever. So, um, but you end up with a very perfect feeling book, and the, you know the self-published uh, books don't feel as perfect. Right. There were two big things that happened actually. Now I'm remembering. One of them was the word count. They felt that ninety-five thousand words was just way too long, and they wanted something sort of. So I had a word count. I, I had a word count limit. So sixty-five thousand was where they sort of cut me off. Um, and, and in retrospect, that was actually good for the pocket of the pendant. It's 65,000 words is about right for that. 
The other big thing that I had was an argument with them over the use of guns in the pocket. Interesting. So originally, in the original version of the pocket and the pendant, I was trying to think like, what would you really do if this really happened if you were a kid? And, and, and maybe this is just what I would have done. <laughs> and this is, this is what I would have done, is once I figured out that time was stopped and adults couldn't protect me, I'd be like, great, where's the nearest gun, gun store? I'm getting a gun. And so they, you know, so basically I have the two main characters, Max and Casey, go to a gun store, get a gun, and then, you know, they, they need to learn how to use it. So they try to fire it. And basically what they discover is that the bullets kind of come out fast and then they start going really slow. So it, it's not, a gun, guns don't really work. And the purpose for that was to, you know, get rid of gun, take guns off the table so nobody can think about them in the book. So I thought that was okay. I thought that was a good compromise. You know, it's not like, the, not like I have kids shooting each other or something like that, right? And so, uh, and basically HarperCollins came back and said, nope, no guns in the book. Can't have them. So I changed it. So instead of a gun, I have them uh, try a car. And I have them try to drive a car. And basically the second they get the engine turned on, the laws of physics are different. So the, uh, you know, the characteristics of the engine are totally different in the pocket. So the engine just seizes up. And so, uh, so I get, so basically I proved the point that like machines and you can extrapolate that probably guns wouldn't work either from that, hopefully. And so that, that's how I solved the problem narratively in the book. And then about, I don't know, maybe a few months after the pocket and the pendant was published, the hunger games came out and you know, the hunger games is all about kids in a death match. <laughs> Never mind guns. They got all kinds of crazy stuff that they're trying to, that they're killing each other with. And, and I, I go back to my editor, I'm like, you wouldn't let me put a gun in the book that like did nothing. And have you read the hunger games? <laughs> and, uh, you know, of course they're like, oh yeah, that's like totally different. I wouldn't have done that and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay. I get this vibe that maybe it wasn't a great experience at HarperCollins. I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, it was mixed. I mean, I was really, it was really awesome. It's really great to be able to say, I am an author published by HarperCollins. I am awesome. That is actually, I mean, people do sort of look at you a little differently when you've been published like that. Um, having that sort of stamp on you does mean something. That said, once you have it, it doesn't really mean much to get it, you know, publish again. It's sort of not the same thing. So, um, so when it came time to do the second book, we talked to Harper about publishing the two travelers, uh, <laughs> which is 180,000 words and a far more expansive kind of uh, book. And they, they basically didn't like the direction I went in and the size of the book. And so we just couldn't come to any sort of agreement on it. They were like, no, nope, we want another little 65,000 word thing. And I was like, no, I, I can't really. Two travelers needs to be big. It, there's just too much there. And so... And, or it needs to be broken up into two books. That was the other sort of thing on the table. But I didn't like either one of those options because I like the I think the interweaving of the stories is important. And I wouldn't want to just sort of there's there's basically two main narrative plots um, to the story. And, and, you know, I would have had to sort of chop them up into each of their own book. And I I didn't want to do that. So that, so we never ended up getting a Harper deal for any of the other Max Quick books. So I just self-published those. So and as a result, they're much larger and they're exactly what I wanted them to be. Uh, but they're probably, you know, it, they, they lack the benefit of that sort of excruciating editing process. There is a lot of value to that. It's just painful. And, you know, I think my frustration with HarperCollins uh, doesn't come from that at all. I appreciate that process. Uh, it comes from them using paper and pen instead of Microsoft Word track changes <laughs> to accomplish that. Because they could have very easily made their changes. And I could go, except, except, except. No, not that one. That one I want to keep. Except it would have just been tons, like months would have been saved in work. 
Yeah. And so I'm in this creative writing class right now. It's taught by Brandon Sanderson. I don't know if you've heard of him. I've heard the name. He's I, a fantasy yeah. author and he completed the wheel of time for Robert Jordan. Ah, right. That's where I know him from. Okay. And our lecture this last, I guess a couple days ago, he was talking a lot about like copyright deals and stuff. When you get to that point, we're able to sign with a publishing house. And one of the things he was talking about was giving away rights to like sequels and audiobooks and stuff like that. When you were doing your HarperCollins contract, I don't know if you're even allowed to talk about this. Maybe. Okay. 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 Um, when you're, when you were putting that contract together, then were you able to keep all of those rights? Did they ever want rights to sequels or rights to the audiobooks or anything? Or were you, were you pretty free to do what you wanted? Um, so I negotiated the rights to um, any sequels were, were mine. And I could, like, they had the first, they had the right to refuse. So basically I had to go shop it to them first. And if they didn't like what I was plugging, they could say no. And then I was free to shop it to other people. But they had the first right of refusal. Okay. Uh, for the pocket and the pendant, I do not, I, I have the right to leave. This is in my contract. I have, a, I have the right to leave up the podcast audiobook or patio book. Like they, they did not make me take that down. Um, and they tried to initially. They initially were like, no, you got to delete all the patio books. Like, okay. Yeah. I was wondering about that. Yeah. They, they tried to go there and I just said, no, dudes, this is, you've got to let me leave those up. And, um, and so they agreed to that, but they said that they had the right to record an audiobook also should they choose to do that. So uh, they never exercised that option for the pocket and the pendant, but they could have. Like, and they would have, uh, and I tried to say that you uh, will let me read it if that, that happens. And they basically told me no. They wanted to have a professional reader do it. So uh, so I lost that battle. Um, all the film rights, all the movie rights, uh, any other sort of derivative work rights were entirely mine. Um, but the book rights to the pocket and the pendant, the publishing rights, uh, to this day, remain with HarperCollins. I can't just go and publish, you know, my own edition of the Pocket of the Pendant. They have the sole and exclusive right to do that. So, so I can't make a box set of the full trilogy, unfortunately. <laughs> right, and you can't—I don't think—get those Lulu editions anymore, can you? No, they maybe take down the Lulu ones. Yeah, those are gone. So those are those are no more. So all of that started like with Max Quick and everything. That was like 2004. I don't even know you were writing it probably 2003 and everything. So yeah. how, we're in 2018 now. How have you seen the publishing industry change in the last 14, 15 years? Um, well, the last time I had like truly direct contact with it was like in 2011. Because that's when the, the, the Pocket Independent was published. Um, I, I think it's probably still the same in terms of uh, the technology they don't use. Uh, I was going to say use, but actually don't use. Um, that all said, I think, uh, you know, it's it's become a lot. I mean, it's great that anyone can publish something to Kindle. So the Kindle direct publishing uh, experience is awesome. And the ability to publish to Audible your own audiobooks is also awesome. You don't need a publisher anymore. The publisher really doesn't provide. They used to provide distribution. Like that was why you published a book, because there was no other way to get distribution because um, you had to manufacture books and, and with the Kindle and Audible you don't need those guys anymore uh, what they're the part of the value that they provide that you have to provide on your own is the editing and you know if you have a really great editor then you're good there and the marketing now the traditional publishing houses don't really do a lot of marketing these days it's, they kind of leave that up to the author so you're already doing your own marketing anyway you know, a lot of people think when you get when your book gets published, like all of a sudden 
the sides of buses like have your book cover on it and you know no <laughs> that doesn't happen unless you're jk Rowling. you know that once they know they've got a sure hit then they'll invest that kind of money in but uh they they're not going to market your book if you're a first-time author so you have to do that yourself anyway um now the amount of money that you keep um when they publish your book you get maybe i don't know i'm gonna say the pocket and the pen it goes for the hardcover i think is like 12.95 or something like that um i get like i think it ends up being like a quarter a book <laughs> whereas if uh you know the self-published versions you know i sell them for three bucks four bucks something like that and i keep two and a half bucks so it's like you know giant difference in terms of the amount of money i make per book so um <clears throat> it's much easier to have a bigger hit for you by selling less books so if you can sort of find your way to provide those pieces of the value chain for yourself it's much better to self-publish these days than not uh, it's good like i said it's good to get the little stamp that says harper collins on you once and after you've been published by them there's not really any further value that you get out of repeated publishing so for someone who's considering going into self-publishing do you have any advice or any tips um <laughs> marketing your book is the biggest riddle conundrum that you have to solve and uh it changes all the time and you have to basically you have to do some you have to go where nobody else is so for example when i published my book nobody was in podcasting yet so i went there and i happened to catch that wave and you have to sort of get your surfboard in the water before the wave hits so you have to try to figure out where the wave is going so you know there was another moment like that when the when kindle direct publishing came out uh if you were one of the first people in on that that was a really great place to be um I don't know where that is right now, uh, but somehow you have to find a way to rise above the noise. And you know, it might be building a Twitter following. It might be, uh, you know, Facebook page. Uh, although that seems kind of lame right now. I don't know maybe WeChat or Telegram or something like that. Uh, probably Snapchat. <laughs> well, that's, even that's even Snapchat's kind of old news at this point. So I don't know what the hip new kids are doing Instagram, these days. Instagram still. <laughs> Whatever go there. <laughs> Um, I mean, the, what you're describing, it sounds just like entrepreneurship. I mean, and, and that's what you do. And it kind of fits in perfectly, I think, with with your publishing career and, and stuff. Is, do most people know, realize that or? Yeah, you have to be an entrepreneur as an author. There's no, you can't divorce the two. So when you're writing your book, you can sit in your house and be all alone and, you know, do all, you know, basically write whatever you want. But then when you're done writing your book, you can't just sit there and be like, oh, okay, people, now come and buy my book. It's done. Uh, and then when nobody comes, you're going to wonder why. And the reason why is because you haven't told anyone about it. And so you have to be, a, you have to market your book. You have to tell people about it. You got to go out there and, you know, Bible thump. You got to speak the word. And that means speaking, you know, reading your, from your book aloud any, to anyone who'll listen, anybody, because you never know when Yoda is going to be in the audience. All right, Jeffrey, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. I haven't done an author interview in a long time because I've been working on entrepreneurial stuff. So uh, this has been very fun and a pleasure. I really, really appreciate you having me. Thank you. Of course, The Pocket Independent is still out there and available as a podcast. Just look up Max Quick in Apple Podcasts. And if you're wondering whether or not the book is any good, Margaret Atwood liked it. Yes, Margaret Atwood, who wrote The Handmaid's Tale. 
read the POC Independent, and told Mark that she really enjoyed the story. I mean, I was doing a podcast interviewing authors at the time, so we met through that. And so she knew who I was and asked me, you know, asked me what I did, and I told her. And uh, she apparently went and grabbed a copy of the book and read it, and uh, and really liked it, and said some nice things about it. So I got that. I have that on video. Thank God. That's a very powerful endorsement right there, yeah. Margaret Atwood. She wouldn't blurb the book. I did ask her to blurb the book. Basically, what she said is, "Look, I'm Margaret Atwood. Like everyone and their brother wants me to blurb their books. If I blurb one, I'll never stop. I'll never stop. I'll never leave my house because everyone will be, you know, all over me to do that. So, so I, so I kind of said, "Yeah, I get it. It's cool. Like, no big deal." Thank you so much for listening to our pilot episode of About the Author. So much time and work went into putting the show together. And of course, there's more to come each week this month. But if you liked what you heard and you want to support the show, one of the easiest and most helpful things you can do is leave the show a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This podcast, while only running through the month of June, might actually be something we bring back later in the year and produce on a continual basis. So when you leave a review, you'll actually be making it easier for me to book guests for future episodes and therefore continue the show. So if you have a couple of minutes today, please leave About the Author a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, if you have a comment or suggestion, be sure to visit author.bookstacked.com to get in touch. I also have to give a special thanks to Anchor for hosting this podcast for free. You can start your own podcast at anchor.fm. They're like becoming the YouTube of podcasting, so seriously check them out if you're thinking of launching your own show. And of course, a special shout out to everyone who provided feedback during this podcast production. That includes my friends and peers at Brigham Young University and, of course, the incredible Bookstacked team. Next week on the podcast, we're speaking with Obert Skye, author of the popular Love and Thump series. Be sure to keep an eye out for that episode next Friday. Only